Welcome back to the map. And today we are going to discuss prison reform with the mentally ill and the mentally ill. And our guest today is on the front lines of the topic and is someone who can speak directly to the issue. But before we dive into this controversial topic, we got to meet the team. My name is Andy Bernstein, your moderator, and with me are my wonderful co-host, the great Willie Drinkwater addiction specialist, along with Kristen Perry Long. I'm going to let both of these fine people tell us who you are. So, Willie? Well, I was going to say equal rights, but ladies first. Chris, what's up? <laughs> equal rights, but You're ladies first. political, okay? Okay. None. No None. political. Oh. No. no. So uh, my name is Chris Long. I am a recovery coach and advocate, and I work for Aware Recovery Care, which is an in-home addiction treatment program. We meet clients where they're at. And you've been on the front lines, both on a personal and professional level. Correct. Okay. And you're currently in Florida. Currently in Florida, taking care of my 90-year-old father and my 86-year-old mother. But wow. you're But you're stationary, which is always good. Right yeah. now. And then Willie. Okay, well, there you go. William. Willie Drinkwater. I've been in the uh, field of mental health and addiction for 32 years. I did inpatient psych addiction locked door for 15 out of the 32 years. Uh, I'm an educator for UMass Boston in the addiction counselor education program. And I also have a private practice that uh, is supposed to be in Beverly, but it's been out of my house now since probably April of there last you go. year. So. COVID-19 relocation yeah. uh as for me i'm andy bernstein i've been in media for over 25 years developing numerous cause marketing campaigns to help communities i've created a number of campaigns to help address problems uh facing our country so um that's who i am that's who they are how was your holiday guys mine was quiet i spent it with all my holidays since thanksgiving with my mom and my dad. So it's quiet. No kids. It's really weird to go from five kids at Christmas to two older people. Mm, yeah. Right. It's got to be drastic. It is. Drastic change. Like I said, I'm right where I'm supposed to be and making memories. And this is temporary and it's hard. But, you know, this is a different kind of mental health. Like this is. Mm. It's beautiful, though. It's beautiful what you're doing. It, it, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It is hard though. It is. Part it's of tough, the life stuff, process. Though. It's tough. It's yeah. tough stuff. Been there, done that. So I know. What's What's your New Year's resolution, Chris? So my New Year's resolution is uh, one of them is to you know get back on my uh, eating healthy diet type of thing. You know, um, as well as uh, really focusing on on meditation. Believe it or not, because I think if I'm good inside, then I'm good outside. So. I'm keeping it really simple. Um, yeah. And then my other one is I started a challenge. It's called the uh, Reach Out Challenge. Do you want me to dive into why I started that challenge? Sure. Sure. Okay. So between Christmas and Thanksgiving, I have a young man that I've been working with for over a year. Uh, and he was out on the streets again. And his run this time was very different than any run that he had done before. Mm. Uh, he basically was housed up at Mass Ave. And it was kind of a, a, a very dark inside look as to what these kids and these adults, these people are going through. Talk about mental health and, and substance use. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he was on Mass Ave living in a tent, um, not wanting help initially. And then when the time came that he wanted help, he didn't have the ability to make that instant phone call. He had to find somebody's phone. Um, and he went to this tent that is, um, that was set up by the state probably what, two, three years ago now, Willie, I think. I don't it's know. about three years ago now. Yeah. yeah, three years ago. And it was set up because I think it was set up with good intentions, but it is kind of shunned upon because of, A, the location. It's tucked away in some a- area where it's not noticeable. And um, it was taken, it was done that way because um, people were complaining. Like the homeless population were sleeping in doorsteps and, and leaving messes in yeah. downtown businesses. They were sleeping on the common, so they needed an area to put all these people, which used to be the where the um, Long Island was, but now right. it's the streets. Yeah. So they basically wanted to clean up the streets of all these homeless people that suffered from, most of them suffered from mental health and substance use. So they created this tent. So I got a inside look via telephone from this inside tent, and there are people that work in this tent that provide assistance to um people looking for services but they're very limited and they're over they're overwhelmed um based on what i heard every time i talked to somebody in this tent um there were people yelling in the background like fighting and yelling in the background you know the person that i was talking to on the telephone was like there's no smoking in the tent you know you could hear people that were overdosing in the tent you know you could hear them get the narcan you could hear all this stuff and it was really upsetting to me because I'm talking to this this person that works there, and you can you can just sense the she, this person was going in seven different directions, and there wasn't a whole lot of help, and there weren't a whole lot of resources, and they were very grateful for somebody being on the other end of the phone, willing to find the DPH beds, find the the insurance beds, set up the rides, do that work for them, help them out. Um, again, I think the intentions of the tent was not what it turned out to be um, and what it has grown into. So my reach out challenge, it's not, it doesn't have to be to somebody who suffers from substance use or, or mental health. It's somebody who needs help, you know, and the, and the difference is, is it's not a reach out and pay it forward. It's a reach out and follow through, like walk that person from the time that you till they they've they've gotten the help that they they need yeah um and so it's it's just a challenge it's there's no no glory um it's just a you know we all know somebody who was challenged you know that especially because of covid reach out be that person be the person on the other end of the phone be that person that you know maybe sits and has a cup of cup of coffee and listens and maybe you can help them in a way that you never knew that you could help them yeah so that's, that's cool. Yeah, that's my one of my New Year's resolutions. Willie, real quick, what's yours? Thank you for sharing that, Chris. Uh, my, my, my New Year's resolution is not to have a resolution because I see where they go year after year. So <laughs> I just All don't right. do them. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've gotten that out of the way, we need to talk about a topic that is somewhat controversial and um, it's the need for prison reform when it comes to the mentally ill, or as you said, Willie, challenged. And we're gonna have our guest now join us, Amy Belger. <coughs> Amy is an appellate attorney and post 
reform. I think I got it right. Um, and she specializes in being an advocate for prison reform. So welcome to the show, Amy. You're muted. Uh, there we go. There we go. Thank well, you, Andrew. Welcome. It's a pleasure. We, uh, we're, we're excited to talk to you about prison reform and wanted to learn more about who you are and the great work you're doing and the importance of prison reform and how it is um, something that I think people probably need to, need more, need to learn more about. So um, tell us about yourself. Sure. So I've been working in the criminal justice system as a lawyer for almost 30 years now. I started my career at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And um, while I was there, I, I focused sort of on um, prosecuting crimes, violent crimes involving victims. I was in the sex crimes unit um, and the child abuse unit. And towards the end of my career there, I was handling um, cases where the victim of a homicide was under the age of 14 or the victim of the homicide um uh, the homicide occurred in the course of a violent sexual assault um so i gained the perspective you know from the victim side of you know um what it's like to be victimized and how that can lead to a lot of mental distress the trauma from that the trauma for the surviving family members and so you know mental um mental disorders and mental illness and and um challenges that come from that experience now um for the past 13 years i've been a post-conviction practitioner um and i currently represent um men who have been convicted of first degree murder in massachusetts okay that's my exclusive practice focus so my clients um they are serving life without the possibility of parole um a lesser part of my practice is i also represent juvenile homicide offenders who are were convicted of first degree murder but are parole eligible because we no longer sentence juvenile first-degree murder offenders to life without we give them a chance okay and so how did how did you become um and willie and chris please feel free please jump in but how did you what what inspired you to become you know a major advocate for this you know as far as prison reform which is kind of something you work closely with how, how did that come about like what made you decide to specialize in this particular area so in you know getting to know my clients as people who are incarcerated and serving the sentences they're serving i realized probably after three or four years of that specific focus that i i had these long-term relationships with my clients that were relationships of trust and in many situations i'm the only human being that they speak to you know that they feel safe speaking to about what they're going through you know what their experience is like um in their incarcerated setting and i noticed that 
you know, there's a lot of co-occurring um, struggles they're having. Addiction, um, you know, trying to stay sober, um, maintain their sobriety, and mental illnesses of a number of varieties, most commonly PTSD. And I felt as though um, that was a skill set that I was lacking as a practitioner because I have a law degree. Okay. And all the other experience that I had gleaned in terms of being able to help them was just sort of anecdotal life experience and professional experience. So I went back to school. I got my addiction counselor license and Willie was, that's how we met. I that's took, how we met. Yeah. I took Willie's co-occurring disorders class, which is, ah, okay. did me a tremendous service. And so um, in order to, look at there needs to be reforms in our criminal justice system because those with mental illness are being um harmed more than helped they're not getting better they're getting worse and and systemically there's changes we can make but um you know being an advocate for reform comes from understanding that those in charge of the prison system are not going to on their own reform the system for the mentally ill it needs to come from the outside and um you know like you saw um recently um the department of justice came in and did an audit of the the department of corrections and that was because it was pushed for right right okay so and it gets pushed for because enough people report to the special litigation department of the federal government that these abuses are going on in massachusetts right uh, and that's okay. what kicks it off so you know as doing research for you um for your for your appearance on our our show um one of the things i you know i've learned doing the show with willie and chris and and other other shows i've started to learn like there's a lot of people out there be like all right you're prisoners you committed a crime you should be in jail i'm not really worried about you right i'm i'm playing devil's advocate with you you're done yeah. you're in yeah. jail that's it we right you know, especially if you're in jail for life it's like oh well you're not people think that you don't deserve anything you know right and so in doing the research what i've learned is is that you know if you break it down for people who don't care you know, you know, here, you know, there are statistics that say, you know, and you probably could speak to this more than I, but uh, I learned a new word yesterday, recidivate, um, <laughs> that, that, you know, that this actually, by not having prison reform, and we can talk more about what that means, but what, how does this um, affect our, you know, the taxpayers and the community by not having um, prison reform? Most of the incarcerated population are going to rejoin us in the community at some point. If they're coming from a, an incarcerated setting, right, a carceral setting, out into the world and they are more dangerous and they are an increased public safety risk because they have unaddressed mental health problems that have been exacerbated mm. during their incarceration. They are not only going back 
for more incarceration at the taxpayer's expense, they're probably going back because they're going to hurt somebody, right? More community on their way, okay? And um, so simply because we put them in a cage and leave them there to protect all of us from, you know, the the harm they caused or to teach them a lesson or to punish them, um, you know, all of those goals are lofty goals. They're certainly legitimate goals. But when we, when we don't address um, the type of person we're going to have rejoin us mm -hmm. by looking at what it is they're struggling with as a person that led to some of this stuff, you're not only going to have recidivism, which is, you know, repeat offending in the community, it's probably going to be worse than what put them there in the first place. And so we, um, we should look at um, incentivizing our um, leaders in government and working on public um, education of these issues um, for the benefit of all of us. So we're not going to save any money on that end by failing to treat, you know, and address mental illness in the incarcerated population. But I think, yeah. but I think go ahead, Willie. No, 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 Chris, for you first. But I think as a country, I think as a country, we choose to not acknowledge mental health. I mean, I think, you know, uh, what I have noticed over my years of working in this field is that the quick fix onto the next is just a pill. Here's a pill. This pill will pr fix this problem. This pill will fix this problem. And you have kids that are on a, a, a garbage can full of pills to address the problem, but it's not addressing the problem. It's not working on the problem. You know, like what Willie does is like he dives into it. Okay, so yes, you might need type some type of medicine. It's just like MAT. MAT is not the solution. It is a tool. Medication-assisted so, treatment. Right. Maybe you need, you know, a pill to help you so that you can work on the problem. But instead, we stuff pills into them and we push yeah, them Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. If I can interject, I mean, I'll get somebody that comes in to see me for the first time and we're, we're doing the assessment and, you know, and they're saying that they, you know, that, that they've been f f feeling depressed and this and that and they think they may need to go on medication. And then we get into it and it's like, well, what's been going on in your life? Well, I'm in a crappy job that I can't stand and my relationship with my wife is going down the tubes. And it's like, so you think the medication is going to be the answer? I mean, you know, but basically it's a situational depression. So maybe if we work on, you know, the employment factor and the relationship with your wife, maybe you wouldn't need the medication, you know? So, I mean, but again, you know, it, it's American society. Give me a pill, fix me now. If not today, yesterday, you know, I want the quick fix. And just to get back with, with the, you know, I mean, nationally, as far as 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 far as in in incarceration goes, Amy, do you see a big difference in states whether they're viewing it as the penal system or correctional system? I mean, the language that we use a lot of times can affect the way we go forward, doesn't it? I. I I think that's probably true, but we've called it the Department of Correction for a year. I, I think my whole life. In so what are we correcting if we're not? What are we correcting? Right. I don't see that. Um, if you read the DOJ report, you're not going to see it either. Mm -hmm. um, but to be fair, 
you know, there are, it is, it's important not to throw too wide a net, cast too wide a net, right? Okay. Because yeah. there certainly are, there are people um, within the Department of Correction that, that mm -hmm. you know, sort of view this issue aligned with, you know, what we're talking about. Right. Um, the problem is they, um, at this present time, they lack the authority to insist upon um, you to make know, the changes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but um, there are people within the system that are of our mindset. Well, well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. how do you determine? Okay, so if you're in prison and you've committed a violent crime, how do you determine whether that person is uh, 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 has mental illness? But like, what's the what's the determination between the two? Sometimes they come in carrying a diagnosis, right? Um, you know, they already, you know, their medical records and their medical history will follow them. They'll come in with prescriptions already prescribed from some diagnosis, right? Um, they also get evaluated when they're in the Department of Correction, either in response to something they've done some conduct they've engaged in in the prison, um, you know, or just it'll be picked up through a screening, you know, like a, a health screening that they have. Now, yeah, Amy, who makes the determination to bring somebody in to do an evaluation? I mean, how does that work? They can, they can be referred by staff for an evaluation. Okay. It can be in response to an incident that it's mandatory. You know, okay. if something, okay. if they're in general population and something happens, they slit some guy's throat, you know, or they, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, just do something weird if there's, you know, an inappropriate exposure, you know, like um, they're exposing themselves. If they're, you know, crying or weeping inappropriately, uh, inappropriate affect, I guess, is the way I would put that, right? Okay. Um, that would be a way. Um, their family can write to the superintendent and say, I've seen these dramatic changes in my loved one. And, you know, um, I'm concerned, right? So, yeah, there's a number of paths that can get them there. Okay. Are the, are the, are the, are the uh, correctional officers trained to understand who, oh. who, is suffering with mental illness are they do they adjust their behavior accordingly or do they continue to treat everybody the same way and is that part of prison reform i think that's really an interesting topic because whenever <laughs> i look at these prison reform you know bill's like we need more training more training for the corrections officer we need more training i i really don't think we need anything more than like the very basic stuff what we need is integration of mental health professionals as part of the staff. Okay. Because if somebody is not receptive to the information and doing the job they were hired to do, that they anticipated to do um, a different way, you can train them all they want and it's not gonna make any difference. But okay. if you have somebody who professionally decided I want to go into this field and address mental health issues of incarcerated people. That's a person who's differently motivated, okay, to be yeah. an actor 
right? So I'm, I'm not like a huge fan of all we have to do to the correction staff is give them more training. I am a huge fan of um, let's have less people doing um, the enforcement, right? Right. Okay. Um, let's have what we need to keep the place secure, but let's have more people addressing things that that believe in right um a humanistic approach those needs being met and that's not to say that corrections officers who are on the enforcement side are inhuman that's not what they signed on for professionally exactly it's like okay right Right. it's like you know i get i get very um triggered willie by you know the defund the police because Mm -hmm. the messaging on that is wrong and um, you know, we've done a grave disservice to, um, you know, a concept that needs some attention. The better way to say that is unburden the police. Okay. We oh. are asking the police to do things they do not want to do. They did not sign up for. It's they not are- in their scope. Yeah. They're ill-equipped. Right. So here's the thing, right? So all of these shootings that have been happening, that police have been doing, right? When there's a hostage hostage situation, what do they get in? They get a negotiator in, right? Well, why when the family's saying he suffers from mental health, why are we going in shooting and then asking questions? Why not if the family has identified their loved one as having a mental break and yeah, they're running around, but they're not running around shooting up everybody. They're running around, they might have a weapon, they might look dangerous. Why aren't we getting somebody in there professionally to be with the police? Because that's not their job to diagnose. Their job is to protect. My, I'm not a therapist. Like, I, I would never say that I'm a therapist. I go to my boundaries. I do my job. Like, why are we having such a hard time allowing everybody to do their job instead of saying, well, you have to deal with this and you have to deal with that. And you have, you know, no, you do your job. We get the professionals that do their job. If we all did our own job, we would unburden a lot of people. Instead, everybody's having to wear all these different hats. And a lot of the hats they're not even trained in. No, it's packaging. It's packaging if it's if it's presented the right way, not defund the police, but have more um assistance, you know, that there it's more complicated than just having the incarceration. There's more to yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that, that went through my mind last week, there was the shooting in Boston where they, they, they killed the guy with uh, mental health issues. It, it was above a candy store or something. And I was thinking, you know, they were aware that he had mental health issues. And I was thinking in terms of why didn't they go in with a, you know, with a beanbag gun, a beanbag gun and, and taser Use that's that not their that's as not. a first option. Yeah, I, I don't you know, know I would shoot to kill. That's what I don't have. I don't understand. Like, you know, I mean, I get it. They have to protect. And I get it. Sometimes people are really, really disconnected mentally. But if the if if, if it's visible and it has been verbalized, mm-hmm. why do we have to shoot to kill? Why? I don't understand. And and then you put them in prison because of their behaviors and we don't address their behaviors. We don't dive into it. It's like telling somebody, you know, it's like telling an addict, okay? If you don't get to the core of the problem as to why you use, you're just gonna keep using. We can, I can lock somebody in a rubber room for six months, right? They won't have any drugs in their system. 
but they're going to go out and they're going to have something happen that's going to give them the permission to use trigger that yeah. problem has not been addressed because it's, of an because of an unresolved issue yeah. right that's a great segue that no that's a that's a great segue because um not to cut you off but i'm gonna cut you off um my question to you amy is is that I, so you know we talked about the doj report we talked about you know with the mass department of corrections now i was reading an article that was from nbc news i'm going to be like chuck todd right now on meet the press i was reading an article right now um in M on nbc news um in december of 2019 that they were saying massachusetts has a de developed a blueprint for criminal justice and I'm reading this, but yet I'm reading the DOJ report. So what's the difference, you know, um, how do you see this? And like, really like, you know, we talk about prison reform and criminal justice. Can you speak to what, what we're talking about when we talk about prison reform and is there a disconnect between organizations or government? I think so, because, you know, it is true that they came up with a blueprint but it's like an architect drawing up plans, right? For you to build your house. Okay, the blueprint, you can't live in it, right? So right. it's a start, okay? And if you don't and if you don't have the if you yeah. don't have a skilled construction <laughs> right. crew. Exactly. If right. you're not going to hire the people to enter there, you know what I mean? Like so no, it's, it looks good. It I, I I didn't disagree with much of anything in it. Mm -hmm. Um I'm waiting to see what it looks like. Right, because mm -hmm. I don't, certainly don't see it. So, um, you know, that was December 2019. Right. And in January 2020, um, you know, Sousa Baranowski, you know, the maximum security prison in Massachusetts, there was an enormous uprising where, you know, the staff, you know, abused and, and um, you know, locked in cells and had you know six dogs on prisoners and you know had them you know bitten and they're you know beating them up and and you know the the they had to um evacuate you know entire units there and it was widespread abuse um in reaction to an incident that guards had in one unit a couple of days before and we've been fighting right with the doc here it is january 2021 for over a year right to get the videotape footage from that prison and the documents of what happened um still they are not forthcoming which is a nice way of saying lying um to the judge that the litigation is in front of about what exactly went on and um you know what they've done um to compensate you know, the prisoners that were harmed from that, you know, they have represented that they've given them back all their legal documents that they took away from them. But like, you know, I, I know firsthand that's not true because, you know, some of them are my clients. And so, you know, then we have to go back to the judge and, you know, we have to say, you know, they did not under oath tell you the truth about this and we have to hope that there's some kind of consequence for that you know um so you know you can have a blueprint 
for criminal justice reform that, you know, got enough votes to get passed in the legislature. Right. But if you're not going to insist that it be implemented, um, it's like the blueprint that sits on the table, you know, that <laughs> it's just a future plan. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so no, thank you for, for clarifying that. Cause as I was reading, I was like, there's, it seems like there's two different things. And like you said, it's uh, a year later or two years later. So, um, so, you know, we talk about prison, you know, talking about prison reform, can you share, um, you know, cause we're given the broad topic, but can you give some specific examples of what needs to be done yeah. from a micro level? I can, I can give you sort of minimum things that need to be done right now. Hmm. Um, and, and it comes of course, from the information that's documented in the DOJ report. Um, I didn't even know till I read the DOJ report that there's some kind of standard where they're, you know, prisoners are not supposed to be held in um, solitary confinement on mental health watch for more than four days. I didn't even know that because I've never heard of somebody being held for, you know, that short amount of time. You know, I've had clients held for a year and a half, you know, um, there. Um, they have instruments of self-harm available to them in on mental health watch, which to me, obviously, right, I don't, that's just counterintuitive. And how that happens, why that happens, you know, we can certainly come up with a list of you know, what are the, all the possible reasons or, you know, how that can happen, but, but it, it has to be something that's within the control of the administration to stop. Right. Okay. okay. So, um, solitary confinement should not be used as a punitive measure for other than, um, you know, something that's going to forward the goals of correction if you will, of behavior. Um, somebody who's suffering some, from severe PTSD that was in the general population and something happened, right? An incident occurred and it isn't attributable to intentional malice, right? Um, it isn't attributable. It, it is directly attributable to a psychiatric issue that needs to be addressed putting them into a cell for 90 days, 180 days is not going to do anything to address. Yeah. 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 Uh, Amy, I don't know what Amy, if you, you, you know, Dr. Stuart Grassian, Dr. Dr. Stuart Grassian's a Harvard, Harvard psychiatrist and he's a lawyer and he's a CPA. I mean, yeah. the guy is off the charts, but, but, uh, but, but he years ago represented all of the inmates be being held in supermaxes across the United States saying, they have a mental health issue and you're putting them in supermax. All you're going to do is exacerbate the mental health issue that they have. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, it's, it, I have found, I have clients with, um, the, we call it SMI, severe mental illness in the mm. prison system who have spent long periods of time in, um, solitary confinement on mental health watch. And, mm. Like to give you one example that I can give you of, of the problem, um, one of my clients who was part of the, you know, the incident that happened at Sousa last January, he got transferred. That's a maximum security, you know, classification facility. They had to depopulate Sousa 
right at that mm-hmm. time he was transferred to a minimum prison in the state and he was put into a cell with a stranger roommate and he was calling me several times a day saying amy this is not safe i could hurt this guy i could really hurt this guy i don't have my medication this makes me very nervous i don't feel safe i don't think the roommate the cellmate's safe um i've been telling everybody here and you know he and i've been documenting it and so i wrote a letter to the i pulled his medical records right from that i had out of my file i wrote to the superintendent and she said you're on notice okay if if his anything happens to his cellmate right or him in there um you were forewarned right and 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 so that solves that problem but why do we need to do that that way that's like a no-brainer is it not if you work in this field but like it's not that no one knew that okay it's that you needed that level of kind of um attention right right okay so that's a problem that's really a problem because that's really basic stuff right if you're if you're a um if you're a, a, an administrative leader uh, of an institution like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but is, is he? Yeah. But 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 I mean, like 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 people view the world based on their own on their own field of vision. Yeah. Schopenhauer. So if you have an administrator, they may be from their from from their field of vision, they'd be saying, "Oh, is this is this someone trying to be manipulative, or you know, or just not paying attention?" You know. Or somebody who just doesn't come from the background that is needed to address that. So what you say is the superintendent of a prison is a professional that's risen up through the ranks of corrections officer, you know, through captain and deputy. You know, they never got any sort of training in terms of those issues or they did get training, but that's not their field. It's just not their field. So why don't you have the deputy, you know, why don't you have you know, a superintendent of mental um, health, right, administration, whose call that becomes. And right, but, hold on, mom next. Go. Write it down so you don't forget it. I won't. So I think, <laughs> so I think like, you know, so the, the progress of substance use and mental health, right, it has progressed. It has gotten worse. And I think, obviously, and I think that when somebody is incarcerated, you know, for mental health, I think more times than not, obviously their problem has not been addressed and that's a a huge contributing factor to why they're incarcerated. But if they haven't been able to communicate out of jail, what makes them, where's the, where's the, the, the help to make them communicate while they're in jail? Because there's nobody communicating with them until they do something to raise that attention until, you know. Yeah, and if you communicate it in jail, is that showing a weakness? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like a stigmatism almost. You know, they're stigmatized because they have mental health and they never, they weren't able to address it outside of jail. They go to jail and now they're really, they're getting thrown in, you know, the hole for for their behaviors. But it's it's like, I think what has to happen, like is there needs to be a bigger, uh, staff on these prisons you know well, there has to be a you know a mental health addiction staff 
person, yeah. somebody. And yeah. I'm Bubs, I'm Bubs, Budsman, I'm Bubs, Budsman, yeah. I'm Budsman. Yeah. When, when you work, when you work with someone, um, you know, one of your clients, like as a layman, I mean, how do you, what do you try to accomplish? What, you know, cause you work with them after they've been sentenced. So what are those things that you, you, you try to um, advocate for or to, to ask the judge for? So as an appellate attorney, I handle the direct appeal of their conviction. And that's how we meet. That's how I get to know them, right? And I raise any issues resulting from their conviction that need to be brought before an appellate court, right? Okay. Um, however, you know, my client relationships are for first degree murder because the sentence is life without the possibility of parole. I, you know, I am very thorough and meticulous in, in looking at their case in terms of issues for appeal. So my relationships with my clients generally go on from anywhere from three to 10 years. Oh, wow. Right? So I, I'm in this, I, I have what I found, which led me, you know, to go get more education about addiction and mental illness is um, I try to form a trusting relationship with them all, not just because they, I want them to feel like they can trust their lawyer, but because they don't have a trust relationship with another human being uh, yeah. in the situation that they are in. And so I try, what I try to do is I thought, I think this is something I want to do for my clients because we spend hundreds of hours one-on-one -on -one over the course of all these years. And why don't I want to be as much help to that person as I can be looking and, at the whole picture? Yeah, the whole picture. And so I, what I try to do is advocate for them on as many levels as I can advocate for them as their lawyer and their advocate. And one of the things that I can do and try to help with is to improve their quality of life such that it is um, in the setting that they're in. Are you, you a non, do you have a, go oh, ahead. Do you get a lot of pushback? No, I, I really don't because um, I worked on the law enforcement side for a long time and I understand all of that. And I try to approach whoever I'm trying to approach, you know, with some empathy towards, you know, what it's like to, to be in that role, to perform that role and try to sort of say, I start with, I appreciate what you do and what you contribute in your capacity. Right. Um, I need to reach out to you in my capacity for this reason, um, because this is the role I play, right? And and I, I'm not saying I don't get any pushback, but what I'm saying is I think that um, if people across the system are approached in a way that they feel like they're understood by you before you start with what it is you want them to do that they don't want to do. You're validating their feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as a, you know, do you fall like, are you set up as a nonprofit? I mean, if, if you have a relationship 
with a client for like 10 years between three and 10 years like is it through the public defender's office i'm just curious of how you um are able to you know if somebody you know doesn't have the funding how can they work with you so i have a private law practice and i accept appointment from the state to handle first degree murder appeals for those who are convicted because even even um people who are charged and tried for first degree murder even if they are well resourced people you know they have money even the wealthy they spend all their money on the trial right okay and by the time they're tried they haven't worked in three or four years normally right right all the money that they have goes into the trial so by the time they're convicted of first degree murder almost every um first degree murder appeal is court appointed what is right. the definition of first degree murder oh, that's interesting yeah so um first degree murder uh, is either a murder that was committed with deliberate premeditation right it wasn't something that happened subtle like there was thought it wasn't a barroom brawl a decision was made mm -hmm. or it's a murder that was convicted with what uh the law defines here as extreme atrocity and cruelty um the problem i often see with that the second is you bring lay jurors in, you sit them in a jury box, ordinary, everyday, average members of the public. Almost any murder sounds extremely cruel and atrocious to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, almost everyone does, right? And so I think there's an overcharging and, an, and, and a higher rate of conviction for that crime than is actually warranted for a penalty to the, that is life without the possibility of parole. You're going to die in prison. So a lot of what I do as a post-conviction lawyer, right, on first-degree murder, that's all I do is first-degree murder, is trying to get them out from under the first, okay? Okay. It's not that you didn't do it, okay? It's not that this didn't happen, but it doesn't rise to the level of extreme atrocity and cruelty when we look at the landscape of you know the conduct that leads to death right got yeah. it yeah got it go ahead chris you could write a book i know it's great it's so fascinating it really is fascinating now another question i had for you and i don't know if you can speak to this um you know we had there was Aaron Hernandez, right? And I don't know if you've probably heard asked this question, been asked the question before, but in that scenario, what could have been handled differently with him? Is there anything that could have been done? Um, was there any, um, you know, lack of attention that we kind of talked about earlier? Like in your opinion, how could it have been handled differently? From what it sounds like um he he had some he was struggling right with some mental health issues right um assuming that's true i don't know if it is because he wasn't my client um you keep an eye on somebody like that you know you try to reach out for them and see if they can get any relief right from from you know what they're experiencing by you know 
any services that are available right through the system you certainly don't leave him in a position where um what he accomplished can be accomplished right you know hanging from his bed sheet from the window and you know all of these things there there isn't any reason why there can't be cameras and monitors and things so that that doesn't happen in two minutes right right um, you know there, there isn't any reason why there aren't sort of rounds being made right right um it it seems as though it at a minimum it's a situation of neglect any any time one of the prisoners hangs themselves you know i i, I don't see how um you don't reach the conclusion that there was some administrative neglect right right you know, is there a high rate of suicide in in jails like they never really talk about it unless there's somebody that has a high profile you know what i mean yeah i do i i think i think it's it's an unacceptably high rate in the sense that when you think about what the environment is you know um we shouldn't be leaving people that live in those conditions even if we think are mentally stable um unmonitored because you know it is a forced situation right um where they've been removed from their community and they've been put into an environment of negativity and deprivation mm. and um i think that even people who ha have no history of um you know mental illness or struggle can can quickly develop that and you know they experience things like the loss of you know the deaths of their children and the deaths of their parents and siblings and friends and spouses on the outside that you, you don't necessarily know that right um they can be going through any sort of thing um that'll you know um impact them in a very different way from a person who's not incarcerated so um i think there should always be a vigilance surrounding the fact that it's an environment that um gives a susceptibility to suicide yeah a quick question for you amy i mean with i mean with, with the position that you're in and every, everything else how important is self-care to you i mean is it something you really need to break away and you know, what do you do for it's interesting Willie, because at the beginning of the pandemic um one of my good friends from law school reached out to me who's a he's a dean of a um law school hmm. in a different state and he said you know what you're trying to do to get your prisons i see this you're trying to get your clients out of the prisons because of the covid right hmm. And it was extremely stressful. And, and I, I was working, you know, very long out. I was only sleeping like three or four hours, you know, for like months on it in the spring, trying to get them out. And he, um, he said, you know, I need you to come learn some meditation. I need you to learn, um, you know, um, how to uh, disconnect from your work. I don't think you're doing it. And I don't think that this is, gonna be sustainable for you yeah. and so he kind of took me into this program of you know mindfulness meditation and um you know recognizing when i was going to benefit from 15 minutes away you know mm. um with that and um it's been really good for me i hadn't had any prior exposure um 
to anything like that. The other thing is I've enjoyed over the pandemic that a lot of people have done is just for lack of right access to a lot of things, just going out for a walk and sort of paying attention to nature again has really been, um, it's been good for me and it's been revitalizing. And well, the Buddhists refer to that as kinhin, it's walking meditation. I love yeah. it. And, yeah. you know, I, you know, it's getting maybe back to some basics from when you were a kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, right. And I appreciate the four seasons even, right. As we're going mm. through this with that, those kind of walks. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. So, so where can people learn more and how can, uh, how can NAMI, how can we get involved? How can NAMI get involved? I think if you see, um, you know, legislative initiatives, right. Towards things. I think that, um, certainly money talks and, and, you know, the society we live in, you know, donate to groups and causes like NAMI um, that, that are forwarding the interests of those who need this kind of help, right? Certainly pay attention, know who your state reps are, right? And you're, you're um, everybody that represents you in government at all levels, even yeah, you know, yeah. federal too. Yeah, know um, who they are. A side note there in Massachusetts, you can go to find my legislator on online yeah, and right. just Another pop in your address. It'll give you the information. Stay current because this is a field, you know, mental health treatment and addiction treatment that is um, evolving. It's ever changing. Stay very current and read. Um, you know, I, there, there's plenty out there and educate yourself watch documentaries that are high quality on these issues i think all of those are good things yeah not that one of the prison i think it's in california and it's like eight floors yeah. i don't know the name of that one do you know that one willie no it's no, on like off the top of my head yeah, it's very interesting but it's it's like it's a circular prison and they're all different floors and um hmm. like the the eighth floor will they'll all flood their toilets and it'll go down like crazy stuff like that like it's i mean it's interesting i think it's like in, it's one of the incarceration shows is is it true like lock up or um is it <clears throat> a lot of what we see in tv can you um do you do you see i guess this is my last question is do you see um are they totally inaccurate or is there some accuracy to the the portrayal of, of depends the, on the show, right? I mean, right, but I mean, you know, is it is it as bad as it looks? Um, I mean, of course it's bad, but is it you know is it um, you know specifically with the guards and <clears throat> you know the way they they uh, they operate? Is it is it a little not as nasty as it appears on TV? If it's, you know, if it's, if it's authentic footage, right, of something, it obviously is what it is. If it's a dramatization, I think, you know, um, it, that's open to some question. Some of the documentaries that are not like footage of what actually happened in real time, some of the documentaries where, you know, people go in the prison and interview people, this, that, um, I think that can actually appear that it's better than it actually is because everybody's on their best behavior for the film crew, right? Okay. Okay. So, and there's notice given and you can't just show up 
right with the film crew and go in without notice but um in the instances where they actually get footage out that they never anticipated anyone was ever going to see hmm. that's where I, and that's what the doj did right with a lot of the report you know they explained that the you know the prisoner who had cut himself and blood was pooling outside you know the um the cell that he was in you know coming yep. out and you know he bled to death in there um and there's all these guys you know, like, there's there's personnel that are not seeing that as anything urgent okay you're not going to see that if you go in with a film crew sure right okay it's going to be sanitized and yeah. even if that doesn't happen every day hmm. and even if that never happened on any other occasion the fact that that happened on this occasion and there's no question that it happened should be all you need to know right gotcha well, guys do you have anything any other questions for amy no this is like we need to have a show too to go on I know. will you come back <laughs> oh i would love to come back okay cool. we didn't scare you away no okay yeah. cool all right well that, th th thank you for coming on that's thank our show for the week Chris, take us out. Uh, thank you and welcome back. Happy New Year. Um, I look forward to kind of getting back on the saddle here and, and bringing, you know, you all information. If you have any questions uh, or requests for shows, uh, ideas, just uh, hit us up. And nonprofits. We want to hear from nonprofits, too, because yeah, we want to start integrating nonprofits yep. and helping yep. nonprofits with more exposure and you know and um you know even on a fundraising level we have some ideas so yeah. please reach out to us as well absolutely all right all right have a great week everybody thank you thanks to mike weber back at mission control Fox amy Park. amy thank you for coming on i'll give you a call over the weekend yeah. nice to see you all right Take that care. is the map for this week we'll see you next time